Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, of course, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today on Inking Out Loud, we are taking our first steps into Patrick Rothfuss's body of work, starting not, though, with The Name of the Wind or The Wise Man's Fear, but instead, The Slow Regard of Silent Things, the Ari novella that takes place during the events of the Kingkiller Chronicle. Hey, now, before we begin, I need to remind everyone that since we haven't yet covered The Name of the Wind or The Wise Man's Fear on Inking Out Loud, Drew and I have discussed, we agreed that for today, we are just talking about this book. We are talking about Ari, everything inside it, but nothing really around it. We can talk spoilers for the first two books because Rothfuss, his forward itself states that you should not read this unless you've finished those two books, but we are, we're going into our um opinions for this book only not about pat rothfuss as the whole so for discussion today is the slow regard of silent things and that's it that said i'm certain the book has given us a lot to discuss so let's get down to it drew please recap this novella for us because it was really weird yeah ori finds some shit she (laughs) yeah that could also be the title of this book although it'd be a little less eloquent no I I mean that like I'm not going to sit here and do a two to three minute summary the way I normally do with books because the plot of this book isn't the point. This is this is not a story that follows a traditional structure. It's not a story that deals with our, our standard three act hero's journey or or anything like that. This is a story that is utterly consumed with the peculiarities and idiosyncrasies of a character. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in this way, like we're going to talk about writing style and this is the leaping off point in. Yeah. We are still going to keep to our structure, but talking about this book, but the writing style is indelibly tied to character in this book. It is, a strange story. Go ahead. It's, you know, we're given from the get-go, we're given stakes, right? Ori wakes up and she knows she has seven days and that she needs to find three things to give to... Something, not three things. She doesn't figure out three things until the end of the book. That's kind of like her apotheosis. But like, she, she has this compulsion on the day Mm. she wakes up she knows in seven days i'm going to meet him and i need need this is not like i i want to be a good person and bring him a gift it is a compulsion it is an inexorable foundational it's a carnal truth. Like to Ari. It, it is. It's, yes. It is impossible for her not to do this. And, and so you're like, okay, here's our plot. Right. And in a very restrained, a very pulled back view. Yes. We get that plot where it begins with her realizing in seven days, I'm going to meet him and I need to be ready for that. And by the end of it, she is ready for that. She has, gone through her trials and she has accumulated the things she needs to be herself and to make the world proper. 
when she meets with him. But it doesn't follow a traditional character arc. It doesn't follow a traditional narrative arc. This is not the kind of thing that we can sit down and start <laughs> reading through like a Brandon Sanderson story, a Robert Jackson Bennett, Daniel Polanski, Matthew Stover. Like, we can't look at the gears of the story and expect it to go somewhere because that's not the kind of thing that, that Patrick in- Rothfuss is interested in writing here. Is that an intentional pun? The gears of the story? Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> okay. And now I want to make a point here. Um, you know, when I was getting my notes together and, and over the last week, you know, since we recorded our last episode, I was doing a lot of Googling. I was looking up reviews of the slow regard of silent things. I was looking See, up, I just, uh, you know, yeah. articles about it. One of the overwhelming uh, sentiments that it, it seems the internet at large has about this book is that this is utterly unique, that nobody has written something like this before. I mean, if we go to... I'm assuming you take issue with that. I do. I do take issue okay. with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, if good, good. If we go please. to Tor.com... Because we'll phrase it better than I ever could. Go ahead. we go to Tor.com, one of the preeminent science fiction fantasy review publications, period, over the last 10, 15 years. If you Google Tor.com, Slow Regard of Silent Things, the first thing that pops up is a title. Five years on, there's still nothing like Patrick <laughs> Rothfuss's The Slow it's Regard like of it's Silent Things. directed specifically to trigger... Uh, yeah, go ahead. You know, and, and it, it goes on. You know, you know, he says, it's so distinctive, a singular bolt of lightning in the genre. Hardly anything like it has been published wow. before or since. Wow. Wow. Really? You know, and, and there are other articles about it. They talk about how this is something that reads like a master of, of literature oh. who's <clears throat> writing something experimental at the end of his career. And it is so okay. unbelievable that Patrick Rothfuss wrote this. Mm so early in his career that he's written two books and then oh. this comes out of the blue, like a oh. lightning bolt. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to read it if I had based it on my decision on those reviews alone. That sounds way, way too much. And so the interesting thing here is that I'm, I, I was a creative writing major. I was involved in the academic side of, Mostly, like I will freely admit, most of the students who went through the creative writing program at Colorado State University when I was there, and I have to imagine this is a similar phenomenon elsewhere, most of those students were people who read and loved science fiction and fantasy. These are people who grew up loving books. And I'm just going to say, most people who grew up loving books weren't reading, like, highbrow literary fiction from The New Yorker. They were reading Dragonlance, and The Wheel of Time, and The Lord of the Rings, and, you know, like, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. These are the stories that sparked, you know, that that sense of wonder and and set people on the path to storytelling. And then you get to college. And you have these literature courses, you have these creative writing workshops, and they try to stamp that out of you. 
in my undergrad, unequivocally, you could not write genre stories. If you had science fiction or fantasy or horror elements in your short stories for our workshops, you did not get credit for them. And the whole point of it was you have to write about characters. This is about character. And you can't write about character if it's genre. Which is a flawed what? A flawed binary, of course. And this story proves that's wrong. This is through and through a fantasy. And it is all about character. But, look. In those undergrads, you had a bunch of science fiction and fantasy students, lovers of the genres, who were told you can't write these genres. And they found ways to write in those genres anyway. I'm not going to say that I was reading stories all over the place in my undergrad that are as good, as well-written, as beautifully crafted as the slow regard of silent things. But they were doing the same things. The difference is that Patrick Rothfuss launched his career on his first book. And he came from an academic background, and so he had this foundation. When people say, oh, you know, people don't write books like this until the end of their career, you know, it's, no. People have been writing stories like this all the damn time, but they don't get the visibility because they don't have one book that became an international overnight bestseller. <laughs> That's my bone of contention. Oh. I think I think Patrick oh, Rothfuss okay. did something incredible with this. I think he <clears throat> broke down barriers. I think he did something necessary. And I hope in the years since he published this book that students yeah. who went through undergrad creative writing workshops and had professors yell at them and slam their hands on their desks and say, you cannot write that. I hope they've been able to point to this book and say, yes, I can. Damn. Damn. Because people have been doing it all along. And Rothfuss was the one who had the clout, who had the visibility, who had the ability to transcend what the stuffy ivory tower academics have said is not possible. I love it. I love it. Yeah. He has the power. When he published this book, he has the power in his hands. Unlike all those classes, when these people are trying to put restrictions on creative writing, they're used to to having the power. He had to make a name for himself, though, to establish that clout, though, because this man has proved himself beyond yeah. any shadow of a doubt with his first two volumes, with the name of the wind and the mm-hmm. wise man's fear. Yeah. I mean, I, and I do want to get into our get into talking about his just his sheer ability as a wordsmith. Yeah, because yeah, and, and none of it surprised me, obviously, in this book. You know, he's a man's an engineer of the written language. He's a boss with his prose, and we're, you know, we're getting all this from a, the point of view of a character like 
like like Ari, who's who's prone already to personification and to metaphor and all kinds of interesting mm-hmm. rule bending things. There's alliteration. There's select like very selective feeling redundance and everything your grade school teacher told you not to do. It's just it's everywhere in this book. And with a character like Ari, I feel like Rothfuss is created this in-world reason to do whatever the hell he wants. And so I think it has to be respected on one extra level deeper for that. I think with the proper context, when you take the right step back and look at it that way, it's it's incredible. Yeah, and this is why I think the writing style of this book is inextricably tied to the only character in this book. Because the style on first, you know, glimpse feels chaotic it feels just intangible and Ari as a character feels chaotic and intangible but once you start engaging with Ari once you start engaging critically with the text you realize that there is purpose there is order within that chaos method to the madness hello yes I love it it's like uh, on one level you have to dig in you have to get into the you know focused perspective to start understanding the method to the madness but at the other you know, you know on the other hand like i said at the start if you pull out mm. there's a there's a standard character arc and story arc it's just the normal range in which readers engage with texts is where this becomes muddied. It becomes nebulous. It becomes ethereal. It becomes the textual manifestation of Ori's white hair floating. A tangled... Just... Whimsical. (laughs) Wispy... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You look at it... As, and, sure. and this is why I'm not. A choice. Uh, this is why I'm not as successful a writer as Patrick Rothfuss because I can't. I'm struggling to put it into words, you know. And he finds a way to put that feeling into words. The lyricism, hmm. the rhythm. He he loves sentence fragments. Oh, he loves. To use oh my God. single words to drive uh, hey, th- points. Thank home. you. This these uses of staccato language, and they're not. If you notice, they're not sometimes uh, the, most effectively in moments of urgency. Many of Ari's thoughts are prone to the like, stumbling yeah. around. She felt. I have this quote here. She felt less. She felt tamped down, dim, more faint, mm. faint, feigned, feign. Just. It's there's this little rhythm with these staccato repeating beats. It's it's you're you're absolutely right. But there's this sense of purpose, this sense of weight with every single one of these steps. I mean, Rothfuss and, and is I so. And I want to point out. Go ahead. And this brings it to another stylistic point: is that he loves plays on words. He loves using homonyms. Yeah. He loves giving you an expectation. Because if you're if you're an experienced reader, if you're a critical reader, you will learn over time turns of phrase, right? Like you'll get used to certain sentence constructions, certain yes. syntax. And he loves giving you that expectation and then subtly turning it. Yes. 
Yes, I have an I have an example here too as well, and I wanted to know if there was a name for this. Perhaps you could help me with this. It was prickle rich with mystery. It was full of musk and whispers and tetradecanoic acid. Is there a name for this? Is this like an like this oxymoronic sort of list of nouns where you get one and the next in a completely <sighs> different context from the last I one? I don't know, honestly. Uh, I would love if there wasn't because we me. could make one here on Inking yeah, Out Loud. They call it a rothicism. But but that's exactly that's exactly right. Oh, you know, no. it's that's he's, not a very he's building you up into this musical lilting rhythm. Yeah, and then he hits you with a hammer at the end of it. You know. Yeah, I don't know. I can say Rothfuss is the only writer who does this because he's not. I, I this is but what I want to look is, into. If you can think of anything else like this, if you're listening to this and you can think of a name for this, or if you've seen it elsewhere, let us know because I love that little sidestep, that little. Yeah, side slap. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. It, it's <sighs> like I have I I have my issues with the story in terms of like I don't think it's a perfect story. I think it, oddly enough, maybe it drags on a little too long. I'm not sure the pace lands. I actually think I agree with that, yes. Uh, especially, yeah, which is weird for a, a 140, 150-page book. But when Rothfuss really gets in his zone, my goodness. You know, there there are yes. in the zone. not many people alive, and there have not been many people who lived in the last 50 years who could write quite like this. I I agree. Well, fully, one hundred percent agree. I mean, it's just there are there are so many moments in this book where I was like, I should write this down and quote this, <laughs> and then I just I immediately discarded it because I realized my uh, my my point of entry for a quote like this and bringing it up and talking about it and glowing about it. This there would be still so many of them that this yep. would double the length of this episode. I, I simply cannot talk about everything in minutia that I liked about this book because his, his writing on it just, it's just, it's, it's magical to watch or, or, or experience. I mean, even on audiobook and I did the audiobook for part. That's how I did it the first time. I don't know if, if we've mentioned this yet, but this is for both of us only our second time reading this. The yeah. first being right when it came out, we read yes. this book when it came out <laughs> and then we went eight, eight years almost now yeah. without reading it. <laughs> so we're both right there. I mean, uh, yeah, and, and Rothfuss himself did the audiobook for this. So, I, I mean, I listened to the first couple oh. hours, but I realized, I was like, you know what? I'm just not getting everything I need to. I need to be seeing the words for this mm. because there's so much to to dissect. And so I did buy the... And he has the, a rich vocabulary in this book. Oh, uh, my like, God. Wait till we get to our, our miscellaneous and I have okay. my new words. I have like 10 of them. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's it's not that in The Name of the Wind, in The Wise Man's Fear, he doesn't use elevated vocabulary. But he definitely doesn't use as colorful language as he does in this book, and that's one of those things that uh, maybe can can we move to like my last style point? No, no, go for it, man. Let's do it as inspiration takes you. That's kind of the point, isn't it? This is point of view, and I, I yes, and that's why I think it's especially appropriate for this book because it is such a fluid thing. Um. The point of view of this book is ostensibly a close third person, you know, a standard what we yeah. have gotten used to. <laughs> Which actually in didn't fantasy. occur to me till the end. <laughs> yeah. But it's not. This is an omniscient narrator 
who knows what's in Ori's head. The thing is, there are no other characters. Hold on. What's the distinction? How do you how do you find Because there are things noted in the book that Ori cannot know. Okay. There are things about the state of the underthing. About the different places in the underthing. I just assume these are things Ari knew. Did it? How no, did it, but, but it's it's almost specifically called out at that. points. How? Yeah. It, just in the language. That's what um, I'm asking. Yeah. You know there there are like when she's when she's drowning early on, for instance, and she has lost Foxen, and she's in the dark, and there are subtle things in those lines indicating what's going on around her in the water that she cannot possibly know. There, it's stuff like that. It's extremely subtle. It's extremely subtle. But if you read back through this book, you will see again and again and again that we are not truly restrained inside of Ari's head. But I think I that, didn't pick up on this. That that's what this book needs. This book doesn't work as a strict third-person limited point of view because Ori is not a strict limited person. She's yes, oh, and, and the prose style okay. is not strict and limited. It's flowery. This is one of like you know people talk about purple prose. The prose in this book is about as purple as it freaking gets. I have no idea what this is. Explain purple prose for those of us who are uh, like incredibly flowery, over the top language and inverted syntax. Is that normally used as just like a dismissive term, or is it like, uh, like an actual often, complimentary term? It is often used as a dismissive term. Okay, okay. Uh, but so it is not. It, it is not an inherently pejorative term. Got you. Got you. Uh, but. And, and, and I think this is a great example of purple prose that is not bad. This is purple mm. prose that makes sense. It fits both the character of... Oh. <laughs> the character of the character and the character <laughs> of the story. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, 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 it just works, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you did. You did. You just brought up the sequence where she was drowning, and that actually uh, reminded me of another thing I had I had uh, thought to bring up earlier. Um, when she's drowning in, I, I want to say it's it's yellow twelve. Mm-hmm. I, I, I struggle mm-hmm. to line up the names of all these areas. She's yeah, the retrieving 12. these artifacts. The, um, like I said, this was only my second time reading this book. You know, the first being right after it was released, and I read this eight years ago. I started to recall what was happening in this scene as it was coming up. This whole drowning sequence how dark and tense and suffocating it felt. So as she goes down the second time out of three times, she goes down and she's remarking internally on the second time, how splendid it's going. Yep. How perfect, how convenient the handholds are, how she's maneuvering around and she's saving so much time. She doesn't even need to expel air. And she even surfaces with, with plenty of extra air as it's starting to occur to me, what's happening next. I'm here in this moment on my second read going, Oh, Rothfuss, you Clever bastard. <laughs> you sadistic genius. He's foreshadowing this next dive so hard with nothing but contrast for those who have, you know, the context for it. it was it was on that first read. It was brilliant. I the horror I kind of felt in that second one as she was remarking on how every, how easy everything was, was mm-hmm. it just made that second read entirely different. Yeah. And it was uh, yeah. it was really cool. I thought it was really neat. Yeah, it's this book's just this is one wild. Of those, 
you know, like, this like is one in, of those books in that, microcosms yes. and in macrocosms, it has structure. Like you said, he he puts a, a gun on the sh- on the mantle during that mini scene, but it's not the same kind of Chekhov's gun that you would expect from a fantasy book, where like maybe you would read that scene in a book written by I don't know Joe Abercrombie or. or Brandon Sanderson, whoever. And you'd be like, oh, three quarters of the way through this book, there's going to be a scene where this character drowns. Right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. here, it's it's a it's like he puts a microscope on it. It's like he's holding that magnifying glass and reflecting the sun's rays, refracting the sun's rays, and focusing them. On one moment, and there it's it's the narrative structure that he's focusing into one scene, and he's saying, "Yes, I'm aware of standard story structure, and I'm going to show you that I'm aware of that." But if we're talking about my whole story, I'm going to flip you off about it. Well, even the structure itself on a chapter by chapter basis is so dynamic. I mean, we have, and this, this may loosely go into now that you've brought it up, this, this, this fact that this could be, this is a step farther back. And this is in fact, perhaps an omniscient narrator, because we have this chapter structure that varies so much, with these long, long ass chapters. And then on the third day, Ari wept. Yep. We have a chapter contained in an entire chapter contained in five words and how against Ari's nature, that kind of that, that at least on the surface that goes we're we're inside her head for this whole thing. We, we can see she's constantly personifying the mundane. She's in her own world that she looks so deep. She sees she elaborates on everything. And so yes. to have this chapter where this moment where she supposedly does completely break down. This is the moment that she omits from description. It doesn't quite feel like it. Like even if it doesn't land, I, I and as this a is move, where as an that author, reading I have to it as an omniscient narrator makes <laughs> yeah. sense. You know, yeah, it's I just it's so ballsy on Rothfuss's part. I have to, I even even if someone doesn't like that or doesn't think that's a really cool move, you still have to respect the balls that takes. I a hundred percent like this is <laughs> figuratively speaking. It's like, so I'm, I'm going to bring it back to my beginning point. I'm done with my style, so go not, ahead. You take it away. This is not an original idea. This is not an original story. This is not something nobody has ever done before. People have absolutely been writing character-focused, quirky, weird stories like this for forever, you know. And the biggest thing that differentiates it beyond the fact that Rothfuss already had his bestseller platform is that he is a phenomenal writer. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about a guy who is in the top. uh, I'm not even going to say the top 1% of writers in the world, the top 0.025% of writers in the world. Like, (laughs) yeah, this is a guy who has, He's a one in a million, I would say, this guy. He's pretty good. He's Transcendent skill with the written word. I'm not going to say he's the best prose stylist I've ever read because I don't think he is, but he's damn close. Yeah. He is damn close. And he 
used it. That's like he had the opportunity. He saw the opportunity and he said, you know what? I got this, this very special baseball bat in my hand and the ball is coming toward me. I'm going to swing at that thing. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's in my opinion, one of the top three greatest wordsmiths I've ever read ever, ever, ever. And my experience isn't, you know, it's, it's pretty much contained everything we've done on inking out loud. Although we've, pretty much covered a respectable body of work at this point on inking out loud. <laughs> Rothfuss is he's oh the man is so good at what he does at, at very specific things. He's damn good writers on inking out loud. <laughs> we have, yeah, we try to keep it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Although we're not running out anytime soon it looks like, which is good. No, we are not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done with my style points. Anything else style oriented? Should we go into Ari as a character? I mean, they're kind of tied. Her yeah. obvious. I mean, she is the only character, so it kind of has to really tie yeah. the style. Let's but. let's focus a little more on her as a okay, person. Yeah. Mm. So the the easy thing to do, and I, I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to touch on this lightly because we said we're not gonna talk about the name of the wind and the wise man's sphere. Well, we can talk. Spoil like like well. Like I'm, I'm trying not to spoil anything from those books. Like I don't well, think the, we really. The forward need to. says you shouldn't read this unless you've yeah. you've read the first, the other two, right? I mean, well, but I would that's, just mean like that's our... more like he thinks you won't have the proper context to understand Ari and the okay. setting. All right, but like the thing is with this story, you don't really need to know Wise Man's feet. Like, you know, I wonder how this would be if you hadn't, because he, she never names Kvothe, so she would, exactly. you would be so intrigued about this idea of he, uh-huh. him, who is he? And know? I think that's something that's beautiful in the story. It makes it so much more compelling when you read it that way. Uh, but anyway, so with, with, with Ari, if you're going to read it as a first time reader or as a surface level reader, or even if you get into maybe a little more of like a modern critical reader, you're going to say, this is a troubled young girl who has obsessive compulsive disorder. Amongst other things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think that's true. I think she does have OCD. Yeah. But, but this is a fantasy story. This is a world that has actual magic in it and actual alchemy. And yes, she has OCD, but that OCD is magically driven. And when you start playing that tug of war, that narrative tug of war, when you get to certain points where you're like, oh my gosh, you you just want to be frustrated with her, right? Like, you're like, why don't you just do the logical thing. Why don't you just handle this object? Like, why are you Mm -hmm. not using your friggin' blanket? You know, like, for people who don't suffer from that mental illness, you get frustrated with her. And then you take the next step and you understand this is a mental illness. Maybe I should be a little more sympathetic. And then you take the next step and you realize, or not, maybe not realize, and, and and I think that's important that I don't say realize, because we do not, we explicitly do not have all the answers about language and magic 
in this world uh as we are still waiting yeah. on the third book but but you can get to the point where you recognize perhaps instead of realize but recognize that there is something deeper going on and that makes ari in my opinion an even more tragic character she is a heartbreaking person to follow yeah I agree. I do agree with all of that. What was really doing it for me in this book, all these hints about her past, her, these, these seemingly, <clears throat> pardon, these reality bending things that are happening around her. But, you know, also we're, we're, we're seeing this, this educational background she has too. Yeah. Which was really, really awesome. Like recognizing the prima axial or, you know, for the, mm-hmm. the arm bone yeah. she had fished out of the water, her proficiency with alchemy and chemistry. She describes fulcrum the the gear at one point as heavy as a bar of iridium i'm like yep. bruh she's yeah, she's held a bar of iridium or at least <laughs> yeah. she's held enough of it to actually be able to properly contextualize its weight so many like how rare is is iridium on temerant or how well is she calculating from a previous uh, also point? worth pointing out sorry i know this is touching on the rest of the king killer chronicles this is the first time we ever get a name for this world temerant Oh, it actually was the first in-text mm-hmm. name for the world? Because mm-hmm. I, I had heard about it beforehand from word of Pat, but I hadn't yep. realized it was the first in-world one as well. Ah, and Ari knows it, of course. She knows the yeah, name of, of the world. Yeah, like that's, that's the thing. It's easy to read her as this urchin waif, you know, this, this just out there, this alien human being who is disconnected from reality and from what we know as the normal she is other with a capital o Hmm. but then this book shows us she's absolutely connected with the concrete with science she's educated she has gone through at least to a, a pretty extensive point, the same education system that the main character of the King Keller Chronicles did. And he feels like somebody who is really grounded in reality, right? Like, and that's why their dynamic is, is so interesting is because they're such different characters. Mm. And, and this book shows us that Ari maybe may not be so different from him. Yeah. It, like, it's so hard for me to completely disconnect Ari as a character from the writing style. Like, I, I haven't even talked about how there's no dialogue in this book. This oh is my god, there's not! Mer- what? Like, Hold on a second. Or, well... Maybe external narrative, depending on how you want to look at the point of view. There's no dialogue. She how doesn't. Did talk. I not notice that? Nobody. There. There are no conversations. It's. Like, but but that's Ari, right? Dude, how do how am I reviewing podcasts like this? Or sorry, reviewing books on a podcast like this? I didn't even notice there was no dialogue in this. Actually, I'm. I'm. Yeah. Yeah. And to say something about like how f-ing naturally it felt in this book. So uh, like, damn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
it's so it's so crazy it, it, it is absolutely a strange book it's a weird book it is not a normal book it's not a unique book but my goodness is it an outlier <laughs> hmm. i just i i i loved all these hints about her past and about her nature and of course like she didn't want it near her when she's talking about the pomace that she's left mm. with during her her soap making no bit of it she knew already she knew of red she'd had enough of screaming you know she just just tossed in there so casually yeah the the way it's... you see her isolation as a human being come through in the way she assigns personality and motivation to inanimate objects like Con, like everywhere all the time well, consistently it doesn't get all that, the time <laughs> and it, that's the kind of thing that on paper would normally piss me off because i get i get sick and tired of things that are repetitive but it feels mm. so <sighs> organic it feels so awry it feels so natural from her filtered point of view that it just yep it doesn't it yep. just it's fine it's impressive it's absolute, it is it's really wonderful impressive. somehow every time yeah yeah so the, do you have more about Ori you want to talk about? Not about her specifically, maybe about her like connection to the world or like just uh, the mystery of boundary. But we'll, we could get that in, in miscellaneous if you want to continue. Like that's really all about okay, Ori yeah, as a yeah, character. Let's, let's move on then. Let's... Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so okay. much. <laughs> okay, good to take it away. Um, the under thing. The, the setting. Under thing. Mm. This is something we've been talking about, or I've been talking about a lot with our Lowtown episodes, where, you know, it's an urban fantasy, right? And one of the hallmarks of an urban fantasy is that the setting, the city, the urban, the urbanity of the world needs to stand out. It needs to have its own character. And when I like had us do slow regard of silent things between books two and three of Lowtown, I wasn't thinking about this. And then I read this book and I was like, whoa, this is super appropriate. Yeah. If it's <laughs> because in... holy crap is their character in this setting. <laughs> How much that is due to Ari's interpretation of the setting, though, really? I mean, we no, there, no, there totally, are many secrets. Totally. We know there's there's a lot of it is due to Ari's interpretation, here, but... but that's a thing in urban fantasy. In the best urban fantasy, the characters have connection to the setting. And that's where, like, so I'm not going to go into spoilers because, you know, we, we're probably going to have Rothfuss fans listening to this episode who haven't read Lowtown. If I you know. haven't, go read Lowtown by Daniel Polanski. It's, it's a ton of fun. The dude knows how to write. Uh, he's, he's got great narrative voice. Uh, definitely he's got a great talented, narrative voice. Definitely yeah, yeah. a talented guy. Um, but probably my biggest criticism of that series is that I haven't felt that connection to the setting. And, and it's because the main character is so cynical, right? Like, okay. Okay. So I was going to ask how we he, could, he's like trying to convince himself that he doesn't care about anything, you know, other than just like living his day to day life. And because he doesn't have a connection to that city, or or he doesn't want to admit he does, because really he does, um, 
like you it's one of those like show don't tell things like we are shown that he does that. but he really doesn't want to admit that he does so he tells us he doesn't but because he's the one telling us he's not giving us his connection we have to see it secondhand and here in Ori's, uh whether it's whether it is a limited third person if you want to read it that way or if it's an omniscient narrator who's just giving us a focused view into this character we are being shown her connection we are being shown the character of the setting around her and we are being shown how it is not only uh impacting her life but how it is shaping her future it's shaping the way she moves forward it's not a a grip on like oh you know this is the nostalgia of my childhood this is something that is ever-changing it's evolving it's a it's a present thought in ori's head she wakes up and she thinks i need to look here and here and here and here all those things. what is okay, up with that everything oh, is in the correct place and nothing exactly has but none of it had changed in the night that was good that's a quote yeah. i have right now nothing yeah. was but anything then, it shouldn't be but later on how could it something changes right yeah. her blanket doesn't like her, her blanket somehow changed, you know, because it's in her head and it's her imparting meaning onto the world around her and but giving her setting character. And of course, she's... there's probably a magical element to this as well. Okay, but... thank you, because she's constantly worrying about the taboo of imposing her will upon the world and how she has to, you know, how oh, boundary yeah, she, is she separate. She chastises herself. She's like, I'm she's so, constantly I'm so horrible. Brutal I'm about so her selfish. Yes. Yeah, like... Uh, it's, like, it's so heartbreaking to read. And you keep wondering, like, what is the connection here? You're given all these puzzle pieces and you know... They eventually fit together, but you don't know if you have the entire puzzle or even how many pieces the puzzle is. You have to figure out what's on the puzzle. It just mm -hmm. it's, there's mm -hmm. so much around her that's tantalizing, and it's kind of frustrating. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a, a word I used earlier. Like it's easy to be frustrated by Ari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what happens if she does, if she wakes up and nothing? You know, it, it, like there's several things that are different, and it, what does her will? Uh, being imposed the weight of her will which was as i mm -hmm. understand it almost the, the title of this book um what like what, what what is the context there what does what consequence does that have like there's just so much more that i want and i uh, i risk going into uh, other things around rafa's here let's just talk more about like the the mysteries here the, the mystery of the black door that was mm. separate from boundary right that wasn't the black door they didn't like become uh, that no, was yeah that was different yeah, she finds herself having this these anxiety attacks, these psychic meltdowns that we don't know, you know, how magically involved they are. But she 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 backs away. She doesn't. She gets to this door by accident. And she backs away. She doesn't let it out of her sight until she's far enough. Like that's creepy. Number one, I love the creepiness of that. So, there's so many questions involved there too. It's just man, I get major. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie, but uh, Nemo in Dreamland. No. Uh. It's an old, old school cartoon. Actually, I'm curious. Uh, I'm going to look Nemo this up. Nemo in Dreamland. I want to write that one um, down. It's like... Or, or no, uh, sorry. Ad Nemo, Little Nemo Adventures in Slumberland is the whole name of the, the movie. Um, when did this come out? Slumberland. Something 1989. Already. Yeah, Little Nemo okay. Adventures in Slumberland. Um, as old as we are. 
but uh, you know, it's it's one of these portal fantasies where, uh, like Peter Pan, for instance, where a young child goes to sleep and and yeah, is in like the it. night taken off into a fantasy world. But there's he's taken to Slumberland, and there's you know like a whole majestic castle and and city and everything. But there's a door hidden deep in the depths of the castle. Mm. Okay. And he inadvertently opens the door and it releases the nightmare, you know, and it, and it starts taking over. And, but the black door in this, oh my gosh, every time I read those words, I just got flashbacks to like, Nemo. Well, and, we already and the door, have context you know. for, for forbidden doors, locked doors in the King Killer Chronicle in, in the archive, you know? Well, that might be a spoiler. Oh, sure. Uh, sure. Just, yeah. But. You know, I, it's interesting though. Like there's, uh, is, mm. <laughs> there is lots of, there's lots of, that is uh fertile ground upon which to plant some horror seeds. I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> likening back to the, actually the, the, the original series, I had a little giggle when Ari was considering giving a bit of her soap to Kavoth as a possible gift. You know, it was not right for him. The mysteries might fit, but he had much of Oak about him. Willow too. And he was absolutely not a Celis sort. The Celis flower. Yep. Of course, being already a special sort of flower in the, in the story from Kavoth's point of view. I thought that was a little, I, just, I got a little giggle out of that. Yeah. Little nasal oh, yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah. It was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, um, I have a list of words that I still learned that were absolutely new. But do you have any, any other miscellaneous points? No, to I'm, to? I'm done. Uh, go for it. Gloaming. Oh, gloaming. The yeah. time of day immediately following sunset. Had never heard that word. Really? <laughs> yeah, I swear. See, I feel like in, that's another one that was in the Wheel of Time. It probably was. It honestly probably was. And maybe through context, I immediately just took it or just like skimmed past it. Um, Incarnadine. Again. Uh, Yes. Bright crimson or pinkish red color. I'd never heard that word. Frangible. Uh, I, I feel oh, sorry, like go ahead. Incarnadine, that's another one. Like, I don't think I had ever explicitly read or heard that word before, but I was able to understand it just based on the root. You know, like yeah. carnation. Yeah, yeah, carnation. Like, yeah, like, like carnal, carniv. Okay, yeah. got you. Like, so yeah, you, okay. you just think of that like blood red, you know. Right, exactly. Yeah. That which, that which lies at deepest. Yes, exactly. Um frangible which is fragile yeah. or brittle yep, yep. um apetalus which originally i thought was like apitalis i'm like what the hell is this word no apetalus without petals it's just a plant without petals a obviously without oh yep. okay made sense at that point mm-hmm. palimpsest that's my favorite one i think for this week a manuscript or piece of writing material on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writing but traces remain that's palimpsest. Or sorry, palimpsest. Yeah, I was going to say. I, I was palimpsest. Like... <laughs> sorry, it didn't yeah. sound right to me at that point, actually. There was another, yeah. Palimpsest. Pardon me, everybody. Also, stayed. S-T-A-I-D, of course. Yes. Stayed. Sedate, respectable. Stayed. Oh, ooh, I like that. That sounds so much more appropriate. Okay, I don't know if that's actually the... No, no, no. Correct, it needs to be distinguished, though. But that's how I think I've it should be distinguished it. on first pronunciation. I like that. I think I'm going to take that up. I'm actually going to look this up now. <laughs> uh, While you do that, I will say I didn't know it was possible whoa. to... Whoa. 
Okay, that that was me opening my dictionary app on my phone and got an ad. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> While you looked that up, it, I will just state that I had no idea it was possible to simply be whelmed. But yes. now I do. Yes, there's a freaking joke about this in 10 Things I Hate About You. Is there? I'm telling you, this movie... I heard it in a, in a it's one podcast of the best once. movies ever made. It is one of the best <laughs> movies ever made. There's, Ten a, things I hate about there's you. a moment where, like, you know, one of the, like the super ditzy blonde girls is walking through the parking lot going into school with her friend, who's one of the main characters. And, and she's like, you know, I know you can be overwhelmed and I know you can be underwhelmed, but can you just be whelmed? <laughs> turns out you can it just means to engulf submerge or well, bury well no so no that's, that's the thing is whelm means the same thing as overwhelm well no you have to be overwhelmed like over submerged or overburied. No, i guess that's no, kind of redundant yeah, exactly isn't it? it means the same thing if you're, you're right, submerged or, or huh. overtaken you're you're being overwhelmed you're right yeah, yeah, it, it sure. means the same thing. But like buried in golf, submerged, yeah. Uh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool though. I was like, huh, interesting. It's there, it's in the dictionary. I was <laughs> Yeah, like that's you know, that's the beauty of these when you get certain types of writers who are Polanski's one of those. You know, Polanski is absolutely one very of those. willing yeah. to expand your vocabulary stover yep donaldson donaldson yes you know and and we haven't even gotten to gene Wolf gotten yet. to don't even bring oh yeah. God, it's a, like a new language we're gonna have to learn <laughs> basically <laughs> but yeah that's you also you know that is something patrick brothless i don't think he gets enough credit for that like i'll, I'll see threads on reddit fantasy or whatever you know, on Facebook where people are like, you know, tell me a, a book series that taught you a lot of new words. And people generally bring up a handful of, of the typical writers, Le Guin, Wolf, Donaldson, uh, Guy Gabriel K. You know, nobody really talks about Rothfuss. Really? In this that would way. be like at the top of my list. But because I haven't read I think it, yet. I think it's a, an indicator in the, uh, like how approachable his prose is people think about the genius in his prose as being like the lyricism, right? Like the, the poetry in it, because That's there's literal poetry leader, yeah. in yep. his prose. Like he, he will that. use metered couplets and, and, and rhyming couplets and things. Oh, like I don't that. like the rhyming cup uh, and, in, and uh, yeah. iambic pentameter in dialogue and, and stuff yeah, like that. that. Um, that's something for us to talk about in in our yes, it will be potential will be future kinkiller episodes. <laughs> it will but, be very contentious. <laughs> but people don't talk about the vocabulary because overall, you know, like he doesn't hammer you over the head with unusual words. In this book, it, it's more obvious because it's an unusual book. It's an unusual voice, and that vocabulary fits it. But people generally focus more on Kvoth, on on the 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 voice of Name of the Wind and Wise Man's Fear, and they're like, oh yeah, like it's beautiful, sing songy, blah 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 blah, and they forget about the slow regard of silent things and what he's doing in this book. Hmm. Agreed. Agreed. 
Mm-hmm. Um, are there any other miscellaneous points that you wanted to get to, or nope. shall we go into I'm my done. favorite scenes? <laughs> yeah, I only have really one scene that I I'm gonna say yeah. like stood out to me. Uh, well, yeah. okay, no, that's like there are two scenes that stood out to me. One that I loved, and one that right. I was just like. Yeah, I had asked because I was like, do we, do we, like, I have three favorite scenes, of course, picked up, but we are doing that, right? And Drew was like, mm, I might not have them. So, but if you, if yeah. you have a couple, let's definitely include them. Okay. So I'll start with my, the scene that stood out that I wasn't the biggest fan of. Gotcha. And really, it's like a whole chapter. And it's already making soap. Soap was awesome. You loved it? I liked it. Okay. I did not. Like Just because I've been studying chemistry idea, lately. That's the all. idea of it, I thought the idea of that sequence was great. But it went on too long. This is oh, one of those I agree points with that. where I, I felt for a 140... Okay, let me let me open my, my hardcover right here. Yeah. Uh, this is I, a 100... Uh, okay, this is an author's note. Coda. Yeah, I realized okay, that. So part it, of... it is a 149-page book, and that includes illustrations, which we haven't talked about the illustrations oh, yet. Yeah. But, yeah, 149 pages. Like, he could have cut, like, easily another 20 to 25 pages from this. Um. And and that soap making sequence was the biggest culprit to me. If there's something that he could have cut, I would agree that it is this one. Although, yeah. and, I, and I fully agree that my, I think that my uh, enjoyment of this sequence in particular, despite its length, because I will say despite its length, I, I agree that it, it went on about 25% too long. I think, <laughs> at least. Um, it was just because I've been doing a lot of chemistry myself lately, um, getting back into that thing. And it, it's kind of interesting to see how she kind of amalgamates the ideas of chemistry, alchemy, her lessons from Master Mandrag, um, and then how it like reflects on, on how she sees the world functioning as, as a whole. It, it, I think that that extra context made it worth it. But I do agree. I think Rothfuss is good enough to have cut almost half of that and still made it work. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Still make it work. Pardon me. I switched tenses there. Um. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, so... Uh, my third favorite scene. Pardon. There's this throwaway little detail in in, in this in this little action here that um, happens after Ari finds Tumbril, this which is this new area that she that she names, you know, and she yep. takes her first look around there. I have the quote here: "There was a loose stone in the floor next to the wardrobe." Ari prized it up with her fingers, adjusted the small leather sack and piece of wool padding underneath, then slid the stone back into place, tamping it down firmly with the handle of the broom. She tested it with one foot and smiled when it no longer shifted under her weight. Like, she finds this brand new area in the under thing she's never been to before. She stumbles, almost literally stumbles, across a hidden compartment with a leather sack and this wool padding. She clearly has found the most interesting thing in this room to yeah. any observant reader. And she literally could not give a f- she, yep. It's not even of interest to her. I love how Rothfuss manages not only to make the reader laugh and appreciate this, but he also demonstrates something so central about Ari's character with this one throwaway detail. It's honestly this throwaway detail. It's how it's treated. I thought that was really I'm curious when you read that the first time, I don't know if you remember. I didn't even pick up on it. I did the audio book the first time. Okay. All right. When you read it this time and picked up on it, did you think 
because there, there's this nagging thing for her, right? The first time she gets in there where there's something wrong about <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the grimoire. Or, yeah, or, yeah. Uh, not the grimoire. The vanity. The vanity, yeah. Um, yep. And, and she can't figure out. She's like, it's not like there's something misplaced with it. Like, did you immediately think, like, you just ignored the most blatantly obvious out-of-place yeah. thing in the room? Like... <laughs> Yeah, that that's I, I was too busy laughing at Rothfuss's audacity in deciding to use this as a moment to sh- to demonstrate something about Ari. Yeah, I, yeah. I, it was just the the like I said, the audacity of that was too. Um, I had too much appreciation for that in the meta, so it was just I, I wasn't too in, uh, invested enough to really want to like get frustrated about that. It was funny. <laughs> I, I really appreciated it. Nice, nice. Uh, so, what was your second favorite then? Second favorite. <clears throat> Oh, pardon me. I just skipped up here on my page by accident. Oh. Ari's indignation as she finds out her precious soap has been eaten by some creature. And I have again, of course, as you know, I have the quote here. Reaching out, she took this tuft of hair between her fingers. The gesture was so tight with rage that she feared she'd snap and crack the world in two. She stamped her foot. She hoped the greedy thing shit for a week. She hoped it shit its awful self inside out and backward. <laughs> I was like, good Lord. Those words were such a shock. I mean, I loved them. I love them. But not just for their like objective hilarity, but the fact that Ari is still herself human enough yeah. to find herself in this vicious circle of thought like that. I just chef's kiss. It was, it was just lovely. Nice. So, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, my favorite scene one? is go for it actually very early on in the book it's the oh. first time she goes into the yellow 12 and and we okay. just we get this description with the the beam of light coming down the noises is this where it, like it lights up the water too because it's yeah, so bright or is that... yeah. Oh, okay yeah yeah and it, yeah and it combines with this is like i haven't talked about the art yet but this is where I want to bring in the art. Oh. In in my hardcover version, it combines with this sketch, right, uh, of Ari. I'm going to hold this up to the screen for you, Rob. Yeah, I have it here in my ebook too, but it probably looks better on like, the page. Yes. Is... And she's explaining what she can hear yeah. on, on the road, I think, above in that moment too. It's, I could, such, I could... a... Just it's such an evocative, evocative. image. Mm. Bro, get on my level right now. This frequency that we're on, this yeah, is good. yeah, the exact same word. It, like, mm. man, that was some. It's good if, stuff. If I can ever write a scene that gives as powerful a mental image in somebody's head as Rothfuss did for me, reading this scene, like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll die. Happy it reminded man. me of a, yeah. of a game I've started playing recently called Little Nightmares. It's got a lot of, it's got some excellent review there too. It's like, yeah, mm. it's mm. the atmosphere is so perfectly set in honestly still an efficient amount of words. It would take me 50 times this amount of words to approach <laughs> half of this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. Rothfuss is a master at what he does at what he does. He is. Oh yeah. So, so what was your <clears> favorite? Right. My favorite scene. <laughs> sweeping with the restless broom she found. And there's this sort of, even for a Ferrari, oh. unless it's like maybe for uh, another narrator, this, and I want to say extrospective, even though I don't know if that's a word or not, this moment that she has. <laughs> and, and it goes like this. 
Foxen's dignity was somewhat bruised by this because he's hanging from her hair. He's tied around her hair. And Ari kissed him in sincere apology for the affront. But they both knew he took a certain secret joy from swinging wildly about, making all the shadows spin and scurl. For a while, he hung and swung. Ari took care not to notice any undue exuberance on his part while she gave the unnamed stairs a brisk once over. <laughs> this this seemingly slice-of-life moment with her and Foxen doing <laughs> what they do and setting the world right and that chemistry but you know for lack of a better term the uh it's just the alchemy between the two if you will it's just a lot of fun so in it's in it's in its pureness that moment just was so heartwarming that i had to make it in my favorite scene good so. good analogy i like yes. it. Yeah. thank you thank you very much and that's pretty much everything i have to say about the slow regard of silent things I gotta say, we've been going for over an hour on a one hundred and what I say, one hundred and forty nine page book, something like that. Like yeah. we could have gone double whew, if we wanted to. Like, There's a lot to dive into. That tells here. you just, and we barely again, we didn't talk about the story because the story is what isn't what's important, or mm. or the plot. The plot isn't what's important. The story yeah. is really the character. And the way the character interacts with the setting. Yeah. And if we and, had covered the first two books, yeah. we could also have a whole extra hour dedicated to just oh, theorizing well, yeah, based sure. on what we're given here too. So there's just so much to be given Ugh. to be, to be uh, digested, you know, in this book. It's, it's great. Yeah. But, but I, I'm glad we didn't do that because this gave us a chance to do something that I think is quintessentially inking out loud, you know? Like, yeah. One of the things that I think makes us a little different than most book review podcasts is how we look at the actual writing of a book and the slow regard of silent things is maybe the most pure expression of that sort of criticism i like that I you like know that. like <laughs> i hadn't considered that but it's, it's it's very true it's very true yeah it's like i've are... i i have been i have wanted to review this book since we started the podcast basically uh and and we're going to get into the the final draft here, and I'll go into further further detail on that after Rob, you go. Well, hey, I've just been drinking a Molson Canadian here, just because you know it was handy and it was nearby. Nothing in particular to to explain, you know. That's the the Canadian standard, you know. But I yeah. I, I definitely don't have anything to tie it to this week. I had trusted that Drew, you would bring it, so. Oh what, yeah, what's with well, the look? You you, you, look like you got struck by inspiration there. Uh, yeah, Rob, I right. want you to look at the chat in Riverside okay. here. There's a link that I just shared to you. Uh, this is on the Facebook? UK, no, in Riverside. Oh, how do I? Oh, okay, chat, got it. Yeah. Uh, this is the UK cover of the Slow Regard of Silent Things. That is way, almost way Tim better. Burton-esque. Whoa. Way better than the US cover. Um, I, I encourage our... Her hair is translucent. How did he do that? Yeah, I, I encourage our listeners to, he, to look she, this up if this. you haven't seen it before. It's it's a spectacular cover. That's um, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's important because, like, you're reading this book, right, and you're going through, and there's art on the page. Like, many pages in this book are, at least the hardcover version I have, uh, it's only like half a page of text and the, the mm. other half of the page yes. is art. Um, yes. 
I have that too in my ebook copy. Even on the e-ink screen, it stands out. I yeah, like art. Art is is a major part of this book because it's not just the visual art, but the the linguistic art, the uh, the the rhythmic art of yeah, yeah. Like it's it's a whole package. I I, I think it's important if you Google right. If you Google the slow regard of silent things, it doesn't just say you know a novella written by Patrick Rothfuss, it says, uh, oh, oh let, me, let me see if I can find this. Uh, I gotta, I gotta get away from images here. Um, this one that Danny shared in the group of, of written by in, American in author, Patrick Rothfuss and illustrated by Nate Taylor. It's like most of the websites will include Nate Taylor right there next to Patrick Rothfuss. As the illustrator, even though it's yes. not a picture book, you know, like, but, but that's, that's the importance of the imagery in the story, you know, because it is such an artistic book. Um, now I'm going to talk about the beer right here. Good. Do it. My friend. This is, I, uh, you know, so I'm holding it in my hand right here. A 16-ounce can okay, from the family-owned farm-brewed Manor Hill Brewing Company. Manor Hill. And I believe this is, yeah, it's in Maryland. Ellicott City, Maryland. It is a double dry-hopped grisette. And a grisette is, is a... Grisette. Uh, think of a saison, a farmhouse ale, like a, a wild wild yeast, light beer, uh, low ABV. Um, gotcha. yeah. So, so where traditionally the Cezanne came from like French farmers, right? So Cezanne means season. It was a seasonal thing where they, they brewed a beer, stored it and then tapped it in the spring. Uh, the grisette was more of a French miners thing, you know, like, Stone workers. Um, but this beer, I have had this can sitting in my temperature controlled cooler. Oh boy. Oh boy. I I think since December 2018. Uh maybe early 2019. I can't remember exactly when I picked it up, but I traded for this beer. I traded wow. for this beer specifically for this episode. This was very soon after I made the decision on Inking Out Loud of doing themed beers for, oh, for the final boy. draft. You're right. That would be the right year. Now, okay. Rob, I right. want you to pull up again that that okay. uh, cover, the UK cover. Oh, the UK cover that you shared? Okay, got you. Yep. Yep. Take a look oh, at that. Oh, it's still open. Yep, got it. All right. Now go back to to your camera. Yeah. <laughs> what? How did you? What did you? Did you just bring up on the thing? How did you saw this on the beer, screen? How does that make sense? For those people who cannot see my webcam right now. For those people who can articulate what their <laughs> thoughts are at the moment. This beer is called Slow Regard. It's called Slow Regard, and it has a and. And the label art is nearly identical 
to the UK cover art of the Slow Regard of Silent Things. This beer be was 100% inspired by Patrick Rothfuss and this novella we have been talking about tonight. That is I will post absolutely. a picture of the uh, the label artwork on our Instagram, on Facebook, Discord, Twitter, wherever. Because this is, I've been seeing this for a long time. This is the best final draft beer I will ever bring on. <laughs> oh my god. Drew. I I'm I can't even right now. There's no point in the final draft anymore. We have to end the final draft here. No one's ever gonna top that. Right? Oh no, just... no. Okay, okay, I'll I'll hedge I'll hedge. I Hang may on. have a better one for Stormlight 5. Thank you. That's just I'm 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 just unable to articulate things right now. <laughs> I cannot even brain. Words are failing me. So, well, this has been a rather fun episode. A lot a lot uh, more positive <laughs> than I expected it to go. If I'm being entirely honest, this this was a great episode. I, I love. I I had a great time. Like I enjoyed rereading this book. It's you know like we said, I haven't reread this book since literally the day it came. No, out. no. It came out. I read yeah. it in like two days because yeah. I had college at that point, and then I just continued on. Yeah, and I remembered nothing really going into it until Ari was on her second dive, and she started re- remarking on how easy everything was, and I was going, oh, "No, wait a second, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah." But oh. so, I cannot yeah. wait until we do cover books two or uh, one and two. If, if, mm. yep. if we ever get the opportunity to do so. Yeah, the the if is important. Uh, we we will said do so times. if and when. <laughs> hey, that's there is storybook of me. Uh, a third book on the horizon. Let's put it that way. Uh, mm, however, fortunately, it is a spherical. This uh, has been episode one hundred sixty-one of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Next up, we are heading right back into Low Town by Daniel Polanski with the third and final book, She Who Waits. Uh, I am personally quite excited. Like that's yes. a like that's a great title, and it's an even better title once you know the like cultural context mm. of it in the series. Oh, yeah. yeah. So if you haven't read anything by Daniel Polanski, uh, definitely check him out. Uh, the, the Builders. It's a, a novella that he published through Tor.com. Awesome stuff. And then Low Town, his urban fantasy. We've already covered the first two books. Take a look at those. If you want to support the show, uh, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash inking out loud or on coffee. That's ko fi.com slash inking out loud for a, you know, one-time donation. If you don't want to do the monthly subscription, but if you do the monthly subscription on Patreon, you'll get access to tons of bonus content like original fiction by Robert or myself or, you know, early access to episodes monthly newsletter yeah, the ability to suggest books for us to read in the future you know uh, yep yep um yeah I've done quite so, a few patron recommended titles by now so yeah sweet yeah so check us out there as always i have been your host drew mccaffrey and with me is my co-host rob santos right here thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time